Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. It was entitled, the, the Pain of Painlessness. It, it recorded an article that, uh, or an interview that happened some time ago where a lady had mentioned that she was praying for her daughter. Every night, she said, I pray for my daughter every night. And I pray, dear God, please let my daughter be able to feel pain. Now, if that's all that you heard uh, from that interview, you'd say, boy, that is a strange prayer. But as the lady went on to explain, her daughter suffered from a rare medical condition uh, that in didn't allow her to feel any pain at all. No pain. No pain whatsoever. It's called congenital insensitivity to pain with an hydrosis. It's a a very rare disease. And so even if this young girl stepped on a nail or if she stuck her hand in the fire, she just could not feel any pain. And that's dangerous because if you're not aware of injury you could get infection and it could, it could end your life. So the pain, she was parrying for it as a sign or an indicator of something that was not right in the human body or an action that was being performed that jeopardized the entire body. Then I, some time ago, if you remember this article, <clears throat> It's about a young Australian student that was here in the United States. And uh, as he, he, was in, he was in school, and the article goes on to say that three young men gunned him down, shot him to death, and their motive for killing this young Australian young man, according to them, was for the fun of it. They felt no remain, no, uh, they felt no pain from the actions that they had uh, committed against this young man. They didn't have the slightest remorse. And the father of one of these young men that killed this Australian young boy mentioned, my son doesn't feel the weight of doing anything wrong. He has... He does not feel remorse for any of his actions. So here we have two different types or examples. We have the physical pain, which warns us of something that is going on that could harm the body. And then you have the internal absence of pain, which in this case did not even cause remorse or sorrow for its action. In these three young men, the conscience is completely dormant. It's unreactive. And again, I mentioned he had no sorrow, no remorse. Sin that is unbridled brings about the sedation and absence of guilt or of any sympathy or remorse. Unbridled sin. And now we're living in a world right now where sin is running rampant. And we find in the same sense that man has no remorse for the things that he does in many cases. We can look at many of the issues. We can look at abortion. We can look at all of the the things that are going on around us. And in many cases, there is no remorse for their action, the absence of conviction, the absence of moral pain. Now, I, I want to read from 1 Peter 1 and 7, and I want to go in a little bit of a different direction for a moment. I'm actually going to start reading from 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled 
and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. And then he goes on to say in the beginning of verse 7 that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I want to stop at this verse a little bit, and I, I want to look at it again. Let's read it again. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire. What do you think that means? Your faith being tried with fire. Struggle. Pain might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So it's possible that if we endure suffering through faith, that it produces the product of praise and honor unto God. It's more of a pure praise because it's a product of an action. Sometimes our praise emanates from our lips or from our thoughts it's formed in our mind. It's expressed through our lips. But when faith is expressed through our actions, it produces something else. It, perfect, it brings forth a perfect praise and honor that appears before Jesus Christ as glory. So I, I was reading 2 Kings 4. And this is an interesting story about Elijah as he's in the town of Shunem. It says on 2 Kings 4, verse 8, One day, Elijah went to the town of Shunem. A wealthy woman lived there, and she urged him to come in to her home for a meal. After that, whenever he passed that way, he would stop there for something to eat. I believe we talked about this, uh, of this not last Sunday, but the Sunday before. Now she said to her husband, I'm sure this man who stops in from time to time is a holy man of God. Hey, let's build him a small room for him on the roof and furnish it with a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. Then he will have a place to stay whenever he comes by. She sees this person as a man of God and wants to keep him close and prepare a place in her life for him. One day, Elisha returned to Shunem, and he went up to his upper room to rest. He said to his servant Gehazi, I tell the woman from Shunem, I want to speak to her. When she appeared, Elijah said to Gehazi, tell her, we appreciate the kind concern you've shown us. What can we do for you? Can we put in a good word for you to the king or to the commander of the army? No, she replied. My family takes good care of me. Later, Elijah asked Gehazi, what can we do for her? Gehazi replied, she doesn't have a son and her husband is an old man. Call her back again, Elijah told him. When the woman returned, Elijah said to her as she stood in the doorway, Next year at this time, you will be holding a son in your arms. Notice what her response is. She is a godly woman. She wants the presence of God in her home. And the first words out of her mouth are, No, my Lord, she said. Oh, man of God, don't let me don't let me and get my hopes up like that. Don't get my hopes up. But sure enough, the woman soon became pregnant, and at the time, that time the following year, she had a son, just as Elijah had said. You know, sometimes we, when we pray, we, we see the promises of God, and 
We know that they're real and we know that they're for us. And God gives us a promise and we say, oh, I don't want to take that promise because I don't want to get my hopes up lest they be dashed down. One day when her child was older, he went out to help his father who was working with the harvesters. Suddenly he cried out, oh, my head hurts, my head hurts. It sounds to me like a heat stroke. His father said to one of his servants, carry him home to his mother. You know, I, I'm looking at this guy, and in this story, I'm not really impressed by him at all. <laughs> because as we get further into the story, when she's, uh, when she's going to get the prophet, he has no interest in how is my boy. He was One minute he was down, and somebody had to carry him into the house, and He's kind of a character that's involved in his own life and not the life of his family. So the servant took him home and his mother held him on her lap. But around noontime, he died. She carried him up, laid him on the bed of the man of God. Stop there for a moment. What did she do? She picked up her promise and took it back to the place that it came from. She took it back to where the prophet's room was. She had been given the promise in the doorway of that room by the prophet. Then she shut the door and left them there. She sent a message to her husband, send one of the servants and a donkey so that I can hurry to the man of God and I'll come right back. And here's her husband. Why go today? He asked. It's neither a new moon, festival, nor a Sabbath. But she said, it will be all right. She had verbal faith. Sometimes our faith originates from our mind and from our lips, but is not strongly rooted in our heart. She, she expressed, it's going to be all right. I left him in the prophet's room. I took him back to God. I laid my promise at his feet. I, I want to believe, but yet it's hard to believe. She saddled the donkey. You know, I'd fire that donkey, that servant. You know, I read this. What do you got a servant for? Why are you saddling the donkey? She saddled the donkey. She couldn't wait for him to get moving, so she did it herself and said to the servant, can you see the picture? Hurry! Don't slow down unless I tell you to. As she approached the man of God at Mount Carmel, Elisha saw her in the distance. He said to Gehazi, look, the woman from Shunem is coming. Run out to meet her and ask her, is everything all right with, your, with you, your husband, and your child? Yes, the woman told Gehazi. And again, this is a verbal action of faith. Everything is fine. But inside her heart, there's a battle going on between faith and fear. But when she came to the man of God at the, in the, at the mountain, she fell to the ground before him and caught hold of his feet. Gehazi began to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone. She's deeply troubled, but the Lord has not told me what it is. And now it comes gushing out, just like Mary and Martha. It's, it's, it's coming forth from her mouth like a, a river of, of concern. Then she said, did I ask you for a son, my Lord? And didn't I say, don't deceive me and get my hopes up? Now, I, I, I'm looking at this particular story in the Old Testament because it shows every one of our, our hearts at times when we face loss or disappointment. 
Lord, why did you give it to take it away? Lord, what are you doing? Why is this happening, oh God? It would have been better if you wouldn't even have caused this thing to be brought into my life. And, and scripture is allowing us to see this through this individual. And in our lives, we, we have times when we believe and then our belief is affected when clouds of fear come between the sun and our, our hope. And I, I see it not with just Mary and Martha when Lazarus had died. I see it even in John the Baptist. Here's a man that introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God who sent his disciples after him. And now as he's in the prison and everything's gone wrong, this isn't supposed to be the way it is. Here I'm sitting in a, uh, in a jail in, in Jerusalem, I believe he was, and I'm held captive, and I know my life is near the end. And he sends his disciples to Jesus and asks them to ask him, hey, are you the one? What's, it, what, what, what's going on? You, God gave my father a promise. I knew I was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. I had great plans, and while I was, I was doing the work that I was called to do, I felt great satisfaction I felt great purpose, but now I'm locked away in this dirty jail cell. I serve no purpose. This is not what I thought it would be. So it's not just some random act. It happens to each and every one of us at some point in our life. Then Elisha said to Gehazi, get ready to travel. Take my staff and go. Don't talk to anyone along the way. Go quickly and lay the staff on the child's face. But here's the mother. She knew where the promise came from. It came through the mouth of the prophet. She's going back to the very foundation or the source of her hope. It came through the prophet. But the boy's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, I won't go home unless you go with me. So Elisha returned with her. That's what I call bulldog faith. You're not going to try to pass me off. You're not going to send somebody else. We're going to go through this together. Now, Gehazi hurried on ahead and laid the staff on the child's face, but nothing happened. There was no sign of life. He returned to meet Elijah and told him, the child is still dead. And I think about the times when we're diagnosed or we go through a, a physical calamity and we know that God promises us healing and we go to the altar and we get down on our knees and we pray as the Lord has told us to pray with faith and nothing happens. We still have what we're wrestling with. No answer from heaven. When Elisha arrived, the child was indeed dead, lying there on the prophet's bed. And I think this scripture shows the calamity of the man of God also. He's facing a woman that's lost the most valuable thing in her life, her child, something that she had dreamed about all of her life. She'd been married but never had a son. And now she'd lost the child that he had promised her and God had given her. He saw the child laying there on his bed. He went in alone and shut the door behind him. And he prayed to the Lord. I don't think he prayed a lay me down to sleep prayer. I believe he prayed with all of his heart because he felt the raw emotion of this mother. Then he laid down on the child's body, placing his mouth on the child's mouth, his eyes on the child's eyes, and his hands on the child's hands. Now, you may think this strange, but I think he did this because 
His predecessor did it. We're going to read about the woman of the Seraphith, where her son died, and it said Elijah went and he laid on the child seven times, and after the seven times, the child coughed seven times and was brought back to life. So here's Elijah, Elisha, he's laying on the child, or nothing happens when he prays, so he lays on the child just like Elijah laid on the child of the woman of um, Shunem, and nothing really happens right away. It says Elijah got up and walked back and forth across the room and then stretched himself out again on the child. Well, I got to keep trying it. And sometimes we try to do what others have done when they had their prayers answered. We try to duplicate something that someone else did, thinking there was some magical act, some super intervention through this particular way of doing this. But God responds to faith. He responds to active faith. He's walking back and forth across the room and he stretched himself again on the child. This time, the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Then Elisha summoned Gehazi. Get the child's mother, he said, and when she came in, Elijah said, Here, take your son. She fell at his feet and bowed before him, overwhelmed with gratitude. Then she took her son in her arms and carried him downstairs. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you think her relationship with God at the end of this trial was greater than it was before? Do you think her heart of appreciation and her faith was greatly increased through the pain of loss, temporary loss in this case. When we suffer, when we go through loss, our foundation or capacity for faith expands. It's almost like muscle building. You have to tear the muscle to build it up. I think about all the things that God does for us that go unnoticed. And sometimes God allows something to come into our life that draws our attention to who we are and our weakness and instability. I think as we get older, we realize that we're not as in control of life as we thought we were when we were younger. We become more dependent upon other people. We become, in a spiritual sense, the older we get, the more we become more dependent on God. And so that at the latter part of our life, as we've gone through the storms of life and the trials of life, our, our foundation of trust in God is greatly expanded. But it could not have happened unless there would have been some point of pain. And the glory is, is always greater than the pain. Let's go back. I want to look at that story that we just talked about, uh, Elijah and the widow. First uh, Kings, the 17th chapter, uh, verse 8, I believe it is. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Now we're talking about Elijah. He's a predecessor of Elisha. Get up to Zarephath, that belongs to Sidon, and stay there. And you know what? I told you the name. It was Zarephath, not Shunem. I'm sorry about that. That belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Look, I've commanded a woman who is a widow to provide for you there. So Elijah got up and went to Zarephath. When he arrived at the city gate, there was a widow woman gathering wood. Elijah called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup 
and let me drink. As she went to get it, he called unto her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. Not only is he wanting to take what little she has left, he wants her to make it into a meal for him. But she said, as the Lord, your God lives. Now, I, I think that's interesting. Of course, she's, she's of Seraphis. She's probably not an Israelite. But she said, as the Lord, your God lives, I don't have another anything baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a bit of oil in a jug. Just now, I'm gathering a couple of sticks in order to go to prepare it for myself and my son so we can eat it and die. She's not exaggerating, by the way. There was a long famine in the land of Israel. Many people were starving. It was a very difficult time. And she realizes that without any intervention, this will probably be her last meal. She has no prospects of where she can get the things that she and her son need to survive. And here, the man of God comes and says, I'll tell you what, why don't you make me supper and feed me first and watch me eat the last that you have? <laughs> Could that be tough? You got a hungry child? She goes and cooks the meal and then watches you eat. Why would God do that? Why would God instruct the prophet with this poor widow woman and her child to endure this? Because growth comes through pain and trust and faith. Am I willing to give all that I have to believe in, in response to the promises of God? Am I willing to turn over what little I have to God for a promise that I'm not sure that he'll even fill. And then Elijah looks at her in her calamity and he said, he's looking in her face and this is where the man of God, the preachers come in. Don't be afraid. Go and do as you, as you have said, but first make me a small loaf from it and bring it unto me. Afterward, you make some for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The flour jar will not become empty and the oil jug will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. And sometimes we need to come to church and we need to hear the word of God spoken through the man of God in such a way to say, don't be afraid. God's word says that. Just go and do it. The Bible says, try me and see if I will not pour out upon you a blessing. But God, don't you understand? This is all I have. I can't go another mile. I'm struggling the way it is. And God says, give me everything that you have and I will multiply it in my hand and give it back to you. And I see that with the loaves and the fishes. Well, we've only got five small fish and a few loaves. And he says, give it to me. Give it to me and watch what I can do with what you'll surrender into my hand. But see, the previous pain and the previous struggles of our life, they fill us with doubt and trepidation. In this case, she surrendered. It says, so she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. Then the woman, Elijah, and her household ate for many days. The flour jar did not become empty, nor the oil jug did not run dry. According to the word of the Lord, he had spoken through Elijah. I've heard all sorts of theories on this. Well, the barrel was always overflowing and, the, and the, oil was, the oil jug was always to the top. It doesn't matter. They could only eat so much. But every day that they came, they were satisfied. And her son lived. Now look, in this, look at it this way. 
without Elijah coming to the home in Zarephath, to this widow's home, they would have no doubt died. That's all they had. They had enough for one, one meal. So in this case, the child's life has been spared, and her life as well. But notice what happens in this case. Verse 17, after this, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. His illness became very severe, and no breath remained in him. Only a mother, and I shouldn't say only a mother, but especially a mother, who has a child that's sick, whose illness is out of control, who continually declines, and his life seems to ebb from that body, that little child's body. Can you imagine the heart of a mother as she watches her child die? This wasn't just a one-day thing. It probably went on for several days, maybe weeks. It was all so similar to what Mary and Martha watched with Lazarus. It wasn't an instantaneous death and an instantaneous resurrection. There was suffering. There was pain. There was sorrow. There was fear. The word doesn't record all of those emotions. It's just, it's just taken for granted. And then he died. And then she came to Elijah. And she said to Elijah, Man of God, what do we have in common? Have you come to remind me of my guilt and to kill my son? It's almost like you gave me hope, you brought forth life into our home, and then it's taken away from us. But Elijah said to her, give me your son. And I think about how the Bible says, cast all your cares upon him. God says, give me your problem. Give me those things that you are struggling with. Give them to me. And he, so he took him from her arms and brought him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, My Lord God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow I'm staying with by killing her son? Here again, just like Elijah. Here is Elijah. He's frustrated. Preachers, ministers, everyone at times gets frustrated. We don't understand why God does things the way he does them. God, did you, you bring me here to give her hope and then to take it away? The Bible reveals these things to us so we don't feel bad when we fight the same battles. But he also allows us to see the victories for people that endure struggle. It says in verse 21 that he stretched himself over the boy three times. He cried out to the Lord and said, My Lord, God, please let the boy's life return to him. So the Lord listened to Elijah's voice and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. But notice the end of the trial here. Then Elijah took the boy, brought him down from the upper room, into the house and gave him to his mother. Elijah said, look, your son is alive. Now notice, you can see she's taken her son. And then the woman said to Elijah, the first three words, now, now I know. I kind of felt that you were a man of God when you came here, when the, there was food in the, in the barrel and there was oil in the jug, I kind of thought that was really, really interesting how it happened every day. But now through my pain, now through my loss, now I know. The pain and suffering and the trials of life give us affirmation of all those things that we stand for. 
Now I know that thou art a man of God and the Lord's word comes from your mouth and is true. How would we know if it was true if we never saw it in action? I, I relate to a story found in Mark, the ninth chapter. It says, um, and when he came to his disciples in verse 14 of Mark 9, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed. And running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question you with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and he gnashes with his teeth, and he pineth away. And I spoke to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answered him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him to me. And they brought him unto him. And when they saw him, when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he said, He asked his father, How long? Is it a goal since this came unto him? And he said of a child. And oftentimes it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help him. Now, I have this underlined in the scripture. I, I think it's a really important thing to look at. This man is looking at the Son of God, the Messiah, who has done many, many great works. He's that the eyes of the blind have been opened, the ears of the deaf have, have been able to hear, the lame have walked. And he says to him, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, wait, 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 wait. It's not about me. If thou can believe, thou can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said, with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Now if I were to ask you, ask everyone in this sanctuary tonight, have you ever felt that way? Lord, I know, I do believe. I know that your word is true. I know that you will do as you said, but Lord, there's a part of me that's wrestling with unbelief. I know you can, but will you do it? When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was one as one dead, insomuch that many said, he's dead. This was not an easy departure. It said it rent him sore. What does that mean? This was a struggle where the demon inside that young man did not want to leave. It was an unpleasant sight. And when it was all done, the boy lay on the ground and people thought he was dead. In so much that many said he was dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Sometimes the thing that you love the most, you watch the struggle and you watch it on the ground and think it's dead. But Jesus says, no, 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 it's not dead. Watch, I'm going to reach down and I'll pick it up by the hand and what you've given up on will live again. When he looked at, at Mary and Martha, after he had bowed in that place for several days after Lazarus had died, 
And he came back, Mary and Martha, they came storming out of the house. Martha first, Mary later. And they said, Lord, this wasn't a nice conversation. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. All the pent-up frustration, all the pain of watching their brother die and suffer was coming out, and you could have stopped it. Why didn't you stop it? I thought we were friends. You ate in our house. You sat in our house. We opened our home to you, and look what's happened. And Jesus is saying, you really don't understand what's going on. And I was thinking about this on my way to work the other day, and I, I, I thought about it. I actually, I couldn't find, I, no place before this incident that I could find, and if you can point it to me, I'd like to know, am I aware that Jesus referred to himself as the resurrection? Before the, re the resurrection of Lazarus from the tomb, I am not aware of him saying, I am the resurrection, using that terminology. They know that he would refer to himself as the bread and living water and all these other things, but they'd never heard him refer to himself as the resurrection. So they didn't have that promise to hang on to. He'd, they'd watched him raise the dead, but here Jesus is going to show them another side of himself. Not only is he going to show Mary and Martha, but he's going to show all the people that are there, and it's going to be written in the book so generations after this would understand this. He looked at Mary and Martha, and he says, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. If a man believeth in me, though he be dead, yet shall he live. And then he comes up to them, and he puts his finger in their face. And he says, do you believe this? One that is, and he said he talked the same way to Job. Job had, all, Job had lost his family, lost his home. His wife had turned his back on him. He was covered with boils. He was sick and miserable. And the Lord said to him when he started to get a little bit of self-pity, he says, where were you when I did all these things? Come on and talk to me if you can. Explain the behemoth. Explain all these things if, son of man, you're so intelligent. And I think what God tries to say to us is that little black spot in your life that little rock in the road is part of a picture that's much greater than you are. I don't know if I read this somewhere, if it just came to me one day. I get lots of crazy thoughts come through my head. Oh, Lord, I'm just the black. I'm just, God, my life is so bowl full of black. Well, how do you know in the picture of life that you aren't the pupil of the eye? in the bride of Christ, the black pupil. <laughs> see, we don't see the whole picture. Paul said it, now I see through a glass darkly. I, I don't discern why God does the things that he does in the way that he does them. But then, when I'm transformed, I shall know even as I'm known. I will understand. But today, there are some things that I don't understand but I reconcile my faith because of my trust in him. I want to share something with you that happened, oh, probably happened uh, about a week and a half ago. And it might go along with what I'm seeing here tonight. I had a dream, and in the dream, uh, there was... There was a spirit in the house. I don't know, even know if it was my house. It was a house. And I recognized it. Your Holy Ghost tells you when, if it is or it isn't. And in my dream, I recognized it as it was, and I just drove it out. No big deal. Just drove it out. But then I went further into the house, and there was Satan sitting on a seat. Don't ask me how I know. I just know. And so... I became very upset. And I remember in the dream, I felt pretty good about myself, by the way, because I said, Will, really, did I do that? 
is this just a dream or really could I have done this? But anyways, I went to him and I told him to get out and he did not want to leave. And I went right up to his face and in his face I started talking in tongues, full of the Holy Ghost. And then he finally said, okay, I'm leaving. But he left his hand in the room. I know that sounds gross. He left his hand. What he was really saying is, I'm leaving, but I'm leaving something behind that will give me entrance back in. Then the second night, the second night, he was back in my dream. This time, he was hiding in the home. He was hiding in the closet of all things. I don't make this stuff. It's just my dream. And again, I cast him out. The third night, he was back in my dream. This time, he was dressed in a uniform, a police uniform. And he held up his badge and he says, I have authority to come into your home. Look at my authority. And he snuck in and I said, and of course, the same thing happened. I said, you have no authority. None whatsoever. And I sent him out. Now, I asked God, what are you trying to say? Some of the things that we're battling with aren't just things of, normal things of flesh, normal things of life. We are battling against principalities and powers and wickedness in high places. And it's time that we start to recognize the difference between a trial of our faith and a demonic attack. And we need to realize that we have power and authority through the name of Jesus to drive those things that are in our life out. He wants us to, to make room. But if you let him in to abide, not only will you be dealing with the, the normal things of life, but you'll be dealing with spiritual things that will add to your, your trial. And then one last story here. Mark, the fourth chapter. On that day, Mark 4, verse 35, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him, took him with, just as he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. I must have mixed a page here. Huh. Maybe I can read it off of there. Okay, let's go to the next verse. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was, full, was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship asleep on a pillow, and they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish. And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. What's interesting here is Jesus needed to get away. He needed to escape the multitudes. He needed to refresh himself. And so he took his disciples into the boat and they were going to get away from the multitudes to regenerate. And while they were in the sea, Jesus fell asleep before the storm came. It does not say that he fell asleep after the storm came. They, they, he was sleeping when the storm came and they went to awake him. And he said, don't you care? And Jesus is, is looking at his disciples after all that you've participated in, after all the things you've seen me do. Could you doubt my sincerity and my compassion to you. Now, one of the things that's strange about the story is that Jesus speaks to the wind and to the sea. Is it possible that this storm did not come just because of a barometer, barometric pressure? Could this have been a demonically induced storm to come against Christ and his disciples? Because he speaks to the, sun, the wind and he speaks to the sea and immediately it ceases. No more storm. The waves immediately drop. The wind ceases to blow. 
And sometimes we may feel the same way that the disciples felt. Lord, you're sleeping in the boat. Don't you care what's going on in my life? Don't you see that the boat, my life is getting full of, of water and trials and we're starting to go down? So we wake him up and the, and the Lord looks at us and says, you know, these, these things that I'm doing, the things that I do, you shall do, and greater things than these shall you do because I go unto the Father. There comes a time when we've got to grow up and we now need to start exercising the tools and the faith and the authority that God has given to us for ourselves. And that's why I think he was a little upset with them. Okay, let's, I'll do this. I'll come against these, this, this, this trial that we're involved in and I'll show you what you could have done. So tonight, I know that each one of us has different things pop up in our life. Things that we don't understand. And sometimes the, it seems like the storm is filling our ship and our faith is beginning to, to go down. But I want to remind you of whose ship we're in and who's in the ship with us. I don't care if it's demonically uh, uh, come to pass. It does not matter at all because God's authority covers all of it. And again, God never forsakes his people. Sometimes he delays and allows us to grow and build our foundation larger, but he never forsakes us. And that's really what I wanted to share with you tonight. God knows the way that you take. He knows the way that you take. And he's able to keep you against anything, any day, any problem, any situation. But you have to trust in him knowing that the outcome will be better than the initiation. The outcome is always greater than the initiation of promise. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.